recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Today is Friday, September 6th, 2013. Last Saturday, I presented a program which I believe should have answered to any honest reader of Scripture's satisfaction. The question as to why Yahshua Christ healed the Canaanite woman's daughter. If we want to properly identify that reason, we must resort to Scripture and not to the whims of men, not to emotion and the way one feels at any given time, not taking stabs in the dark and answering philosophically questions of Scripture. When the children of Israel had failed to exterminate the Canaanite tribes in ancient times, they were warned that the Canaanites would be pricks in their eyes. In other words, would serve as a method to blind them. And thorns in their sides. In other words, to serve as a method to scourge them. From Numbers chapter 33, from verse... 55, the words of Yahweh. But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which ye left remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides. Well, the children of Israel did not drive out the Canaanites. Therefore, the Word of God says, from Joshua chapter 23, Know for a certainty that Yahweh your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps unto you, and scourges in your sides and thorns in your eyes. Yahweh our God does not change the Canaanites are cursed. They're cursed forever. The day is coming when there shall be no more Canaanites. We pray that that day is near. The Canaanite woman, the story in the New Testament, is certainly a thorn in our eyes and a prick in our sides today. If we choose to abuse that account and turn it into an approval of universalism. So many Christian so-called pastors have done so. Rather disgustingly, even certain so-called pastors who claim to be identity Christians do so today. The Canaanite woman certainly is a thorn in their sides and a prick in their eyes, seeking to uphold the satanic idea of universalism. They're blind, yet they claim that they see. If you want to answer why Yahweh healed the Canaanite woman's daughter, 
You'd better do so from Scripture and not from your own emotions and feelings and suppositions and conjectures because God does not change. Yahshua Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. All of his Old Testament words and promises shall stand. Criticism of the details in language, scripture, and history, which I offer in these programs, has abounded lately. I can only ask... Why do such idiotic people listen to me in the first place? If they don't care for such things, why do they even care what I do? I'll tell you why. Because instead they have underlying motives and they are full of envy or they wouldn't care what I do here. They should check my website where these programs are filed. They're filed under Biblical Podcasts and Comment, I'm sorry, biblical commentaries and podcasts. That is, most of my endeavor here on Friday nights is to present what I would consider to be my Christian identity Bible commentary. So that concerns details in language, in scripture, and in history. With all the works of Bertrand Compare and Wesley Swift and the rest of our forerunners, they haven't come close to producing such a thing. If one is to have his allegorical house planted on a foundation of bedrock, there is a clear need to reconcile Scripture with Scripture beyond what the universalists have done in modern commentaries and center references. There is a clear need to reconcile Koine Greek with modern English in a manner colloquial to the apostles to attempt to express what they meant, which we require a good knowledge of contemporary contemporary to the apostles, contemporary historical literature to do. There is a clear need to reconcile history and scripture. That the scripture may be understood in the context of the circumstances under which it was written. Doing all of this having the ability to do all of this. One's Christian walk is sure, and one's Christian faith cannot be challenged by those devils who seek to undermine it. Therefore, those who would criticize my ministry for these reasons, and there are several who have done so of late, the clown in Dandridge is one of them, those who criticize my ministry for those reasons can only be devils themselves. The book of Acts, chapter 13. It has been nearly a month since we presented Acts chapter 12 here. In that chapter, we saw the murder of the elder James, the son of Zebedee, and the arrest and miraculous escape of the apostle Peter. Both the murder of James and the arrest of Peter 
were on account of the political motives of Herod Agrippa, properly Herod Agrippa I. We will see his son later in the book of Acts. Upon the escape of Peter, we are also introduced to the Apostle Mark for the first time in Scripture. Towards the end of the chapter, we see the death of Herod Agrippa, who did not deny himself when the people extolled him as a god. And the cause of his death, as recorded here in Acts, we also saw corroborated by the Judean historian, Flavius Josephus. With this, we will commence with Acts chapter 13. And verse 1. And there were throughout the assembly, which was in Antiochia, or Antiochia, Antioch, prophets and teachers, namely Barnabas and Simeon, who is called Niger, and Lucius the Kyrenian, and Manaean, a childhood companion of Herodus, or Herod the Tetrarch, and Solus, or Paul of Tarsus. The Codex Laudianus and the majority text have certain prophets and teachers. The Codex Beze has prophets and teachers among them, meaning the assembly in Antioch. Antioch was 300 miles north of Jerusalem. It was on the Orontes River. It was about 20 miles upriver from the Mediterranean coast of northern Syria. It was not that far from the sites of ancient cities such as Arpad, Karkar, Hamath, and Karkamish. However, it seems to have been a new city founded by Seleucus Nicator, a Greek king of the early Hellenic period, around 300 B.C. The Gospels of Mark, Matthew, and Luke all agree that as the Roman soldiers were taking Christ to the place where he would be crucified, they forcibly enlisted a man named Simon. Simon is the the, the Greek version, the Hellenized version of the Hebrew name Simeon. And they compelled him to bear the cross for Christ. When this happened to Simon, it was said that he was coming out of the country, and possible alternative translations are coming out of a field or coming off of a farm. And ostensibly, Simon must have been headed into Jerusalem as the soldiers were leading Christ out of Jerusalem. This was at the Passover, which was one of the three times each year that all Judeans were required to appear at the temple in Jerusalem according to the law. That this Simon is a a Kyrenian or a Cyrenian, it's often mispronounced, that this Simon has a Hebrew name, Simeon, and that this Simon is in Jerusalem at this time is not a coincidence. This Simon is certainly a Judean man 
from what would be called Cyrene, it should be called Kirene, and he was observing the law, which is why he was in Jerusalem at the Passover. Indeed, Simon the Kerenian must have witnessed the crucifixion after he carried the cross to Calvary. Why? It's fully evident that he became well-known to the apostles after the crucifixion. Because of the nature of the gospel incident where he is mentioned, they could not have known his name beforehand. They only learned it afterwards. Three apostles knew his name for their gospel accounts when they were written, much many years later in some cases. Of the three, Mark, who as we have seen discussing Acts chapter 12, certainly already knew Peter and the other apostles by this time. Mark went out of his way to tell us more about Simon the Kerenian. He says it, Mark 15, verse 21, and I quote, And they compel one Simon, a Kerenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. So Mark not only must have known Simon, but also must have come to know his sons. And he mentioned them over 30 years later when he finally wrote his gospel, which by all early Christian accounts is the testimony of Peter which Mark put into writing after Peter's death. Here, in Acts 13.1, there is a Simon called Niger. I'll pronounce it Niger. The Latin word should certainly be pronounced nigger. No lie. Here there is a Simon called Niger, the Latin word for black, who is accompanied by a Lucius, or Lucius, the, the, the K was never soft in Greek, and the C was never soft in Latin. And Lucius is a Kerenian. Apparently, it is safe to conclude that this Simon Niger is indeed one and the same as Simon the Kerenian. That would be my bet. And that is why and how he is mentioned here along with another Kerenian. Now, there are many fools who think or who insist that the appellation Niger means that Simon was a Negro. And yes, I'm purposely mispronouncing Niger because I don't want to call it nigger. However, there were no Negroes in Kerene or Cyrene. There were no Negroes there at this time. This use of the Latin word for black does not necessarily mean that Simon had black skin. White men have for ages used terms like gold, black, and red to describe hair color. And white men for ages have used terms like black, blue, 
or even yellow or green to describe a man's demeanor or perhaps other characteristics. Eric the Red was not an Indian. He was a white Norseman. Hugh the Black was not a Negro. He was a white Frank. He was the Duke of Burgundy in the 10th century. As for white men having black hair, examples exist with Prince Hector of Troy or King Solomon himself. Both are described as having had raven hair. The Song of Solomon, Hector of Troy in the Iliad, I think it's book 19 or perhaps book 18 of the Iliad. Both of them were certainly white men. Both of them, Hector of Troy is the, um, but perhaps the example of the Aryan man, right, in, in classical literature. Kerene, or Cyrene. Kerene was a Greek colony on the coast of northern Africa alongside Egypt. It was fully settled by Greeks as early as, I'd like to say the 8th, but I know it was as early as the 7th century BC. In contrast to Simon, a man with a Hebrew name, who was called Niger, or black, probably after his hair color, the Greek name of his companion Lucius is from a word which means white. As we also noted, in our presentation of Acts chapter 4, there was a large population of Judeans at Kerene. As Josephus attests in his Antiquities book 14, from line 115 or 14, chapter 7, paragraph 2, in the other numbering system, the Wiston numbering system, and I quote, there were four classes of men among those of Kerene, that of citizens, that of husbandmen, the third of strangers, people living among another people, and the fourth of Judeans. Therefore, it is highly plausible that Simon was a Judean from Kerene, or Cyrene. And so is Lucius, his companion, who is mentioned here. One thing's for certain, neither of them were niggers. It's absurd to imagine that. In the reference to Manaean, a childhood companion of Herod the Tetrarch, the Greek word, Symtrophus, which in the King James Version is translated as a verb which had been brought up with. The word is actually a noun and appears only here in the New Testament. It is a childhood companion because it is a noun. While the King James did get the correct sense of the word's meaning, they certainly didn't get the grammatical part right. Well, Herod was an Edomite. However, this does not mean that Manaean was an Edomite. Rather, it means that Manaean came from an aristocratic Judean family 
that his father was either in the employ of the Herodian government, of Herod the Tetrarch's father, who was actually the first Herod, called Herod the Great by the Jews, or that his father was simply wealthy enough and influential enough to be in the social circles of the king, so that their sons were schooled together. Menaean was certainly not an Edomite. Acts 13, verse 2. And upon their performing services for the prince and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke. Now set apart for me Barnabas and Saulus for the work which I have called them. This word translated performing services should be discussed. The Greek verb liturgeo Strong's number 3008. This is the word from which the Roman or, or its noun counterpart, liturgia, is the word from which the Roman Catholic word liturgy is derived. Here it is very literally rendered to perform a service. But the word should not be interpreted to mean the conduct of a ritual such as a mass, as so many cults, including the Catholics, would interpret the word. There was no Christian priesthood in the first century, in that sense. The verb liturgio means to serve public offices at one's own cost, to perform public duties, to serve the people or state. It is not an ecclesiastical word. It's a word used to describe community service. The Catholics stole it and perverted it into an ecclesiastical word. pertaining to their rituals. I shouldn't that that's even a not even a good use of the word ecclesiastical in its original sense, is it? In classical Athens, wealthy citizens were assigned a liturgia or a public duty by the assembly, by the political assembly, right? Such duties may include the building and outfitting of a worship in times of war, or even the financing of a theatrical production in times of peace. And therefore the liturgia in Athens served as a form of taxation. The word liturgia and its corresponding verb were used throughout the Greek world to describe any service which a person may perform for the general public at his own cost. The proper Christian liturgia is any service which one may freely perform for one's Christian brethren. We are not told here what services these are. However, in the early chapters of Acts, it is clear that the apostles were delegating the management of a large and growing Christian community. Acts chapter 6 is an example. While that community was dispersed 
with the persecutions following the martyrdom of Stephen, we saw again that with the death of Herod Agrippa described in Acts chapter 12, that the persecutions had abated. And as it says in Acts chapter 12, verse 24, and the word of Yahweh grew and was multiplied. A liturgia, in its proper sense, is anything you do freely for your brethren, for your community. It's not the performance of rituals. Verse 3, then fasting and praying and laying the hands upon them, the apostles laying the hands upon Saul and Barnabas at the command of the Holy Spirit, they released them. They let them go to the task which they had to fulfill. In the Old Testament, the laying on of hands was used to confer the authority of an appointment or an office to another, as we see with Moses and Joshua in Deuteronomy 34.9. And I quote, And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands upon him, and the children of Israel hearkened unto him, as and did as Yahweh commanded Moses. At this point, without a doubt, it should be absolutely clear that these men were accepted by the apostles as apostles. They were accepted as apostles by the original eleven. It should also be absolutely clear that the mission of Barnabas and Saul was distinct from that of the other apostles. Later we read in Paul's epistle to the Galatians, Galatians 2.8, and I quote, He who has been operating within Peter for a message of the circumcised has also operated within me for the nation the dispersions of Israel, the ancient dispersions. Verse 4. So then, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there sailed off to Cyprus, or Cyprus, and arriving in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of Yahweh in the assembly halls of the Judeans. And they had... Johannes, or John, a reference to, to John Mark. And they had Johannes for an assistant. The Codex Beze has, they had John assisting them. The Codex Laudianus says they had John for a servant. Seleucia was a nearby town just slightly closer to the sea than Antioch. Now, this John is indeed John Mark. We know him as the Apostle Mark. He was first introduced to us in Acts chapter 12 at verses 12 and 25, and I'm going to read them. And understanding it, he went by the house of Maria, the mother of John. Of course, he is Peter. The mother of John, who is called Mark where they, there were many gathering and praying. And then verse 25, And Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem, completing the supply, 
taking along with them John, who is also called Mark. In Colossians 4.10, we learn that this John Mark is also a cousin or a nephew, as the King James Version has it, of Barnabas, whom both he and Paul accompany here. Verse 6, and passing through the whole island, meaning the island Cyprus, as far as Paphos, an ancient famous city, they found a man, a certain Magus, a Judean false prophet who was named Bar-Joshua, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man with wisdom, he, summoning Barnabas and Saulus, sought to hear the word of Yahweh. Concerning Paphos, George Rawlinson, in his edition of Herodotus' Histories, in a footnote in Book 7, at paragraph 195, says that Paphos seems to have been one of the earliest Phoenician settlements in Cyprus. And indeed it was but the Phoenicians who settled it were ostensibly Israelites. Although the translation is challenged in many modern editions, and in many modern editions it is not, in Ezekiel 27.6, in the lamentation over Tyre, the prophet wrote, of the oaks of Bashan they have made thine oars. The company of Asherites, and the word Asherites there refers to the men of the tribe of Asher, the Israelite tribe of Asher. The company of the Asherites have made thy benches of ivory brought out of the isles of Kittim. Kittim was the Hebrew word for Cyprus in the Old Testament scriptures. And Cyprus was originally the land of Kittim, a Japhethite tribe of the same name. After the word Bar-Joshua, in verse 6, the Codex Laudianus inserts the phrase, which is interpreted, Elamus. We will speak about that at length. That actually paraphrases the first clause of verse 8, which is forthcoming. And, and the Codex Laudianus repeats it there. Verse 8, but Elamus, and then there's a parenthetical remark by the writer of Acts, where it says, for thusly, is his name interpreted. But Elymas the Magus opposed them, seeking to pervert the proconsul from the faith, the proconsul being Sergius Paulus. The codices Beze and Laudianus insert the words, since he was glad to hear them at the end of this verse, the word for Bar-Joshua is the Greek Bar-Yesus. In Hebrew, that would be, of course, Bar-Yashua, or the son of Joshua, or Jesus, if you must. The name Elymas is evidently a name from the Greek word Eluma. Eluma is a word which means the tree or the stock of the plow. It's a certain stick, right? It's a wooden stick which goes into the construction of a plow. 
the tree or the stock of the plow on which the share was fixed. That's how Liddell and Scott define the word. Therefore, elemus has a meaning which cannot be related to the phrase bar Yahshua by any means. Yahshua meaning being a Hebrew word which means Yahweh saves or sometimes interpreted by someone as he saves. It can't be related to the word elemus. The name Bar Yahshua is a type of surname seen often in Hebrew literature of the period, right? In names such as Simon Bar Kokhba or Joseph Bar Matthias. I think his father's name was Matthias anyway. I have it here somewhere. These names that, that, that this Bar Kokhba, this Bar Joshua, these names are very much like the British um, fits or son names with, with prefixes and suffixes. The, the Irish Mick, the Scottish Mac, son of Donald, MacDonald, right? Son of Gerald, Fitzgerald. Svensson, the son of Sven. So Bar Joshua can only mean son of Joshua. It's quite apparent. I've seen so many ridiculous things written about this one line of scripture. It's quite apparent that Illumis is not an interpretation of Bar Joshua. It cannot be. Rather, it's an interpretation of whatever Bar Joshua's given name was. And that given name is not supplied here by Luke. In his definition of this word, Joseph Thayer in his Greek-English lexicon rather oddly reads Luke's statement here, supposing that Luke intended to say that magus was an interpretation of the word elemus, something that the Greek text does not at all infer or support. That's the confusion. And, and based on this, on, on this one line of scripture, and it's resolved by simply realizing that Luke didn't tell us what name was that, that this man had that was interpreted as Elemus. He only gave us the Greek interpretation. He didn't give us whatever the Hebrew original was. Elemus is an interpretation of some unmentioned Hebrew name. Elemus, the Magus, opposed them, seeking to pervert the proconsul from the faith. But Saulus, and here's another confusion of names, but Saulus, who is also Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, staring at him. And I'll leave verse 10, which records what Paul said. Many of the people who love to criticize Paul of Tarsus often claim that somehow Paul changed his name. That, that's, that, that's even worse than, than trying to say that Elemus is the equivalent to Magus or Bar Joshua. I love the way people read documents. Too many people can't. They love to comment on them. They can't read them. It's incredible. I'm sorry. 
The claim that Paul changed his name is not an all accurate one compared to this passage, right? Here Luke takes this opportunity to inform us that the man known to him as Saulus until this time is also named Paulus, which in English we are wont to abbreviate to Paul. It was common for men of this period, especially Greeks and Romans, and Paul was a Roman citizen even though he was a Hebrew by race, it was common for them to have several names. One of those several names was usually a gens or a family name. And the other was usually, a, another was usually a given name. And men used only one of those names familiarly. Several men mentioned up to this point in the book of Acts had more than one name. In Acts chapter 12, we learned that John was surnamed Mark. And we commonly refer to that apostle by the name Mark. In Acts 1.23, we see Joseph was called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice. He had three names. In Acts 4.36, we see that Joseph was alternatively named Barnabas by the apostles themselves. Additionally, men often adopted the name of a, of a patron as their own. For example, the Roman emperor, commonly known as Vespasian, we all refer to him as Vespasian, his real name was Titus Flavius Sabinus Vespasianus. Flavia. Titus Flavius means Titus of Flavia. Flavia was his gens, or his family name. Vespasian became a benefactor of the Judean historian Josephus. Josephus originally called himself Joseph Bar Matthias, Joseph the son of Matthias. And he was a Levite by tribe. And Josephus expressed his gratitude for Vespasian's benefaction by adopting the name Flavius. And therefore, today we call him Flavius Josephus. It may be that Luke took the occasion here to introduce Saul's name, Paul, his other name, not his change name. He had both. Luke introduced his name, Paul, here, conjecturally, I can only conjecture this, in order to indicate that there was some existing relationship between Saulus Paulus and Sergius Paulus. Or perhaps Luke himself only learned here during this event that Saulus was also named Paulus. Whether or not there was a relationship between Paul and Sergius Paulus. In any event, it is fully apparent that Barnabas and Paul had ready access to a man of high office, a proconsul, is the governor of a province. You don't just walk up to the government governor and start a conversation, do you? Well, under normal circumstances, you didn't then and you don't now. 
Saul and Barnabas also had the respect of Sergius Paulus. And these circumstances make the claim or the possibility of a prior relationship between Saulus Paulus, Paul of Tarsus, and Sergius Paulus very credible. And I believe that there was, but I can't, of course, prove it. The circumstances, I believe, demonstrate it. So Luke, in their meeting, in, in the meeting of Saul and, Bar- and, and Barnabas with Sergius Paulus, Luke simply takes that opportunity to explain that Saul had two names, Saulus and Paulus. And from this point on, Luke refers to him as Paul or Paulus, and no longer as Saul. And Saul, Paul of Tarsus, had nothing to do with that. He, he, he must have used Paul. He must have chosen to use Paul for a specific reason. Perhaps in a future program, in, in a future presentation in Acts, I'll explain what the words Saulus and Paulus, what they mean. Because I believe, like all Hebrew names, they, they do have a meaning pertinent to Paul's mission. Paul used the name Paul in all of his letters. It may be for some reason that the original apostles knew him as Saul. Maybe that's the name he used in his official capacity in Judea. That's fine. Maybe it's the name he used in school. That's fine. He was a young man at this time. Well, well, he was a young man in the end of Acts chapter 7 at the stoning of Stephen, but for some reason chose to use his other name, Paulus, in his ministry, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. The man had two names. But Saulus, who was also Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, staring at him at Elymas the Magus, said, O full of guile and all fraud, son of the false accuser, or son of the devil, enemy of all righteousness, will you not stop perverting the straight ways of the prince? The question is rhetorical. It's more or less a challenge, just like John the Baptist challenged the Pharisees to produce good fruits. And of course they couldn't. That's why he said that the axe was already laid to the root of the tree. Elymas, a son of the devil, an enemy to righteousness, was evidently not a candidate for conversion to Christianity. That's why Paul would have called him a son of the devil. He's evidently an Edomite variety of Jew. Can it be proven? Well, it can be proven circumstantially because Paul never told this man to repent. He never attempted to convert him to Christianity. He only asked him, would he not stop perverting the straight ways of the prince? Evidently, there's no room for repentance. Verse 11, And now behold, the hand of the prince is upon you, and you shall be blind not seeing the sun for some time. Then immediately there fell upon him gloom, or literally a mist, and darkness, 
and he sought to be led around by a guide. Then seeing that which happened, the proconsul believed, being amazed at the teaching of the prince, or the Lord, if you will. The codices Beze and Laudianus have marveled and believed, to which the codex Beze further adds the words, in God. Elymas was made blind, not so that he would repent. He had nothing to repent of. Rather, he was made blind so that the proconsul could witness the glory of God. Verse 13. And setting sail from Paphos, Paul and those with him came to Perge in Pamphylia, but withdraw, withdrawing from them, John returned to Jerusalem. Then they, passing through from Perge, arrived in Pisidian Antioch, and entering into the assembly hall, on the day of the Sabbaths, they sat. On the day of the Sabbaths. Paul and those with him, literally the phrase is only, those around Paul. Luke's use of this phrase at this early time certainly to me seems to indicate his desire to illustrate that Paul was already the central figure of the group, that Luke would be focusing on Paul as the central figure of the group. And from this point, he certainly does. Perge in Pamphylia, an ancient Greek city in a district on the central southern coast of Anatolia. In ancient times, Pamphylia was generally believed by the Greeks to be first settled by Chalcol. There are many witnesses to that in ancient histories and classical histories. Herodotus 791. Strabo, Book 14, Chapter 4, Paragraph 3. I believe this is the same Calcol as the Calcol mentioned in 1 Kings 431, along with Darda. Calcol was related to Darda, the legendary founder of Troy, known to the Greeks as Dardanos. The Greek classics relate Calcol to Dardanos, 1 Kings 431. mentions both men as men of the tribe of Judah, Zara Judah. In Greek literature, the Pamphylians were related to the Trojans. Perge in Pamphylia was an ancient Greek city. So was um, Antioch, a Greek city, just not as old. Antioch was a Greek city, and Pisidia was a district in Anatolia north, north and northwest of Pamphylia. It was a landlocked district. The Greek presence in Pamphylia dates to, to, to um, the earliest Greek records, and, and earlier than that, the Greek 
presence in Antioch dates to at least the 4th century B.C. in Pisidia. As for that phrase, the day of the Sabbaths, in the Greek the word for day is singular and the word for Sabbaths is plural. The rendering is absolutely literal. And the reading is consistent across all of the ancient texts. The inference seems to be that they entered in and sat in the assembly hall on every Sabbath day. There was no word for week in the Greek language. And the Hebrew word Sabbath was used in the Greek text of all biblical literature to describe both the Sabbath day and the seven-day Sabbath cycle, which we would refer to as a week, right? The phrase, the first day of the week, for instance, appears several times in New Testament scripture and always refers to the first day after a Sabbath day, with Sabbath being the word translated as week. I believe that day of the Sabbaths seems to refer to every seventh day of the week, which is the Sabbath day itself. Verse 15. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, they sent the assembly hall leaders to them, saying, Men, brethren, if there is with you any word of encouragement for the people, speak. And arising, Paul then motioning with the hand said, Men, Israelites, and those fearing Yahweh, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and raised up the people during the sojourn in the land of Egypt and with an arm raised high led them out from her. Literally the phrases in the sojourn. The word during may also have written in the time of. It's a metaphorical rendering of the word en, which literally means in, right? And so 40 years' time, he bare with them in the desert and destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan. He gave them their land for an inheritance for about 450 years. And in the course of these things, he gave judges until Samuel the prophet. He bear with them. The codices Alexandrinus have from Syrian Laudianus have, he sustained them. I have a long note on chronology here. The word meta at the end of verse 20 in, in, well, at the beginning of the second clause in verse 20. The word meta often is usually translated as after. But here it is in the course of. And that's because meta can mean with also. And Liddell and Scott, in their definition of the word meta, offer that very definition, that it could mean in the course of these things. While there are some slight differences in the Greek, all of the ancient manuscripts of Acts agree on this reading concerning these 
450 years. As we examine at length in our presentation of Acts chapters 6 and 7 several months ago, the Exodus almost certainly occurred during the reign of the Egyptian pharaoh Thutmose III, who ruled Egypt for nearly 55 years, presumably from 1479 to 1424 B.C. Paul's statement that the period of the judges lasted for 450 years seems to be consistent with the duration of the judges' period as that book appears in our Bibles. But there are some ambiguities if we try to reckon it precisely. We do see at Judges 11.26 that at that point it had been about 300 years at that time, which is the time of Jephthah, since Israel had taken the land of Moab. Therefore, from that point unto the time of Samuel may have been, may have been another 150 years, depending on how we reckon it. And we will present, well, we will estimate how Paul reckons it here, because I believe Paul reckons the 450 years to include the life of Samuel. The chronologies may never be reckoned perfectly. There are so many factors involved. An example is found at 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, where the King James Version and the Masoretic text state that Solomon's rule began nearly 480 years. It, it was actually the fourth year of Solomon's rule. And it was 480 years after the children of Israel left Egypt when the temple was dedicated. Now, the Septuagint version of that same passage has 440 years. And examining biblical history, that period is way too short. If we count the 40 years of the Exodus, the 450 years of Judges, as it is stated on the surface here in Acts, and then we add 40 years for the rule of Saul and 40 years for the rule of David, we may reckon 570 years for that period where the King James Version at 1 Kings 6 1 says it's 480 years, and 570 years is far too long. However, Paul's 450 years here reckons the length of the time, the length of time the children of Israel were in the land, and Paul's words may well be read with the understanding that he says, in the course of these things. in the second clause of verse 20. And not after that, as the King James Version translates that word meta. Paul says that in the course of these things, in reference to the 450 years and the time of Samuel the prophet, who lived nearly until the time that David had become king. Therefore, it is possible that Paul meant to reckon the life of Samuel and Saul's 40 years, most of which occurred during the life of Samuel, in with the 450 years. And therefore, Paul's estimation would be consistent with the Masoretic text 
at 1 Kings 6.1, where the difference would only be 10 years, provided that 1 Kings 6.1 is not reckoning the 40 years in the desert with the 480-year period, but rather counts them as part of the process of coming out of Egypt. So if 1 Kings 6.1 and 480 years don't count the 40 years in the desert, and if Samuel and the rule of Saul and his 40 years are in the course of the 450 years, which Paul credits the judges period here, then basically the two chronologies are only 10 years off, and that's plausible. What I'm trying to say is that when we see how things are counted, we have to be careful of precisely how they are being counted. We have to um, understand them in a way that reconciles one scripture with another. With Paul's words here in Acts, if we estimate the time of the Exodus to 1450 BC and count the 40 years in the desert to precede the 450 years of Judges, which it should, then adding the 40-year reign of Saul, David becomes king around 920 B.C. The year 920 B.C. is very late for the beginning of David's rule. However, if Paul means to count the ministry of Samuel in the course of these things and the rule of Saul, in with the 450 years, David becomes king around 960 B.C., and that, compared to the rest of the biblical history, is much more reasonable. This is why, when translating the Christogenian New Testament, I have interpreted the use of the word meta to mean in the course of, rather than after, as the King James Version reads the word. All of this was thought out, right? Either translation is possible, since the Greek word meta may mean either with or after. I believe it should mean with here in the course of these things. Neither can we take it for granted that the reign of the pharaohs, as they are popularly reckoned by anthropologists, are written in stone. There are chronologies which place the reign of Tuthmos III to begin and end a few decades sooner than the popular chronology stated. Considering this book of Judges, we see that it covers what, well, if, if we count the way I reckon Saul's words, the way I reckon Paul of Tarsus's words, if we count from the beginning of, of the book of Judges through the, um, the life of Samuel and the reign of Saul, if we count 450 years, we have very little history for this important 450-year period. And 450 years is a period which is even longer than the modern history of North America. Right now, it is not even 400 years since the first English settlement of Virginia and New England. Well, well New England will be 400 years in 2020. Jamestown was a little sooner. It might be 400 years. It's not 450. Look at the book of Judges, and that's all we have for 450 years. Wow. 
The judges period is important. It's crucially important. Because although at times Yahweh allowed the children of Israel to be oppressed by their neighbors, ostensibly for their sins, during this period, the children of Israel, for the most part, lived under a manner of government which was prescribed by Yahweh himself before they demanded an earthly king. During the period of the judges, Yahweh himself was king over the children of Israel. Yet we only have one scant, thin, one, one thin book to glean anything that we can from that period. Verse 21. And then they demanded a king, and Yahweh gave to them Saul, son of Kis, a man from the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. Let's read their demand for a king from 1 Samuel chapter 8. I'll only read from verse 10. And Samuel told all the words of Yahweh unto the people that asked of him a king. And he said, This will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself for his chariots, and to be his horsemen. And some shall run before his chariots. And he will appoint him captains over thousands, and captains over fifties, and will set them to ear his ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his instruments of war, and instruments of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries, and to be cooks, and to be bakers. And he will take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your men servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men and your asses and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your sheep and you shall be his servants. And you shall cry out in that day because of your king, which you shall have chosen over you. And Yahweh will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he rehearsed them in the ears of Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Samuel, Hearken unto their voice, and make them a king. And Samuel said unto the men of Israel, Go ye, every man, unto his city. They demanded a king. And this is exactly why we are in our current worldly predicament. Because our ancient ancestors rejected Yahweh their God as king and demanded an earthly king. The result has been far worse than Yahweh had even forewarned the people in 1 Samuel chapter 8. However, inspecting the books of the law, the prescience of the word of Yahweh certainly warned that this was going to happen. 
Therefore, in one in Deuteronomy chapter 17, we read the following from verse 14. When thou art come into the land which Yahweh thy God gives thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me. Thou shalt in any wise, in other words, thou shalt not, set him king over thee, I'm sorry, thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom Yahweh thy God shall choose, one from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou shalt not set a stranger. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee who is not thy brother. The record that Israel demanded a king is found in 1 Samuel chapter 8, as we have just read. And while Israel had demanded a king in response to the evil of the sons of Samuel, described at the beginning of that chapter, who were to take his place as judges, the remedy which the people chose was nevertheless their own. Yahweh God would later bring the people back to himself by raising himself from the seed of David as king. For Yahshua Christ is Yahweh manifest in the flesh. Yahweh God portrays these events in retrospect through his prophet in Hosea chapter 13 from verse 4. Yet I am Yahweh thy God from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior beside me. And verse 9, O Israel, Thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. I will be thy king. Where is any other that may save thee in all thy cities? And thy judges of whom thou said, Give me a king and princes. I gave thee a king in mine anger, and took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is hid. I will ransom them, verse 14. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. Hosea 13. The idea that the children of Israel wanted an earthly king. The idea that Yahweh, their, our God, is Savior. The idea that Yahweh, our God, is our only legitimate king. The idea that Yahweh, our God, will save us from our sin and from death. All rolled up into one chapter all rolled up, I should say, all summed up in Yahshua Christ. Verse 22, And removing him, 
a reference to Saul. He raised David for them for a king, at which he also spoke, testifying, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who shall do all of my desires. Now the Codex Vaticanus wants the Greek word rendered a man. The Codex Laudianus wants the entire phrase, all the words rendered, a man after my heart who, therefore the Codex Laudianus, which is from the 5th century, reads only, I have found David the son of Jesse shall do all of my desires. Here, the the book of Acts records Paul's words as paraphrasing both 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, and perhaps Psalm 89, 20. However, the second part, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who shall do all of my desires. While certain of the Psalms certainly express those ideas, And at least part of it is reflected in Psalm 89.20. Not all of those words are found in our extant copies of Scripture. It could very well be that they were in Paul's. 1 Samuel 13. And Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of Yahweh thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would Yahweh have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. Yahweh has sought a man after his own heart. And Yahweh has commanded him to be a captain over his people. Because thou hast not kept that which Yahweh commanded thee. In Psalm 89 verse 20. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil have I anointed him, whom my hand shall establish, mine arm also shall strengthen him. Paul's statements are, are, are a, seem to be a, a, a paraphrase of these two passages combined. Verse 23. From his offspring, meaning David's, From his offspring, Yahweh, according to a promise, brought to Israel a savior, Yahshua. John, a a reference to John the Baptist, John proclaiming before the appearance of his presence an immersion of repentance to all the people of Israel. There are some differences in manuscripts here. The Codex is... Ephraim Siri and the Codex, Codex Beze have raised in place of brought. The Laudianus and the majority text have salvation in place of a savior. The phrase, the appearance of his presence, is literally the entrance of his person. And of course, the word rendered immersion in verse 24 refers to the baptism of John. The promise of a savior which Paul describes in verse 23, is found expressly in 2 Samuel chapter 7. While the prophecy seems to be talking of Solomon, by no means was it fulfilled in Solomon, since Solomon never suffered any physical calamity. Solomon built an earthly temple for Yahweh, 
But only Christ himself is raised an eternal temple for Yahweh. I'll read from 2 Samuel chapter 7, from verse 8. Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, I took these from the sheep coat, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with thee, whithersoever thou went, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And of course, the children of wickedness still afflict us today. We're still waiting for the fulfillment of that. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also Yahweh telleth thee that he will make thee a house, and when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. Now, in part, it does apply to Solomon, but Solomon didn't establish the throne forever. The prophecy in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is a dual prophecy applicable to both Solomon and to Christ. In this manner, the lives of David and Solomon together become a sort of type for Yahshua Christ. 2 Samuel 22, from verse 50. Therefore I will give thanks unto thee, O Yahweh, among the heathen, and I will sing praises unto thy name. That should probably say among the nations, right? He is the tower of salvation for his king and shows mercy to his anointed unto David and to his seed forevermore. Jeremiah chapter 30, from verse 9. But they, a reference to the long-dispersed children of Israel, but they shall serve Yahweh their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. Therefore fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, saith Yahweh, neither be dismayed, O Israel, for lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. From Hosea chapter 3, verse 5. Afterward shall the children of Israel return, and seek Yahweh their God, and David their king, and shall fear Yahweh and his goodness in the later days. Now Paul's challenge was to elucidate the scriptures in order to demonstrate that Christ was indeed this David of the promises, promises which were made long after the passing 
of King David, who was merely a type for Christ. Paul's challenge was to show that Christ was the promised David. Verse 25. And as John fulfilled his course, he said, Who do you suspect me to be? I am not. But behold, he comes after me, of whom I am not worthy to remove the sandals from his feet. Paul is paraphrasing comments attributed to John, John the Baptist, in relation to an event which is recorded. In all four Gospels, in part, in Matthew chapter 3 and Mark chapter 1, but more fully in Luke chapter 3 and in John chapter 1, verses 20 through 27. Paul's words here indicate that these accounts of John the Baptist, which are seen early in the Gospels, only record events towards the end or the fulfillment of John's ministry. It is only natural according to the law and the purpose of God, that John's ministry had run its full course with the immersion of Christ himself and John's announcement concerning Christ, that he was indeed the Lamb of God. It was necessary, according to the law, for the Passover lamb to be cleansed before it was sacrificed. That was John's mission, to cleanse the priests, the sons of Levi, and to cleanse the sacrifice, Joshua Christ. Malachi chapter 3. Therefore, after that time, John's ministry did not continue much longer. And John, Paul, describes it as having run its course upon his testimony of Christ. Verse 26 Men, brethren, sons of the race of Abraham, those among you fearing Yahweh, to us was this word of salvation dispatched. I don't see any universalism there. The Greek text of this verse, which is presented by the 27th edition of the Novum Testamentum Greca, follows the manuscripts which have and those among you, which makes it appear as if Paul was addressing two groups distinguishing sons of Abraham from those who fear God. The oldest Greek manuscript which has this reading is the Codex Sinaiticus. There are very few occasions when it and the Codex Vaticanus differ significantly. Aside from the Codex Sinaiticus or the Codex Vaticanus, which is roughly equal to the Sinaiticus in antiquity, and both are esteemed as being from the 4th century, and then there is the 3rd century papyrus labeled as P45, one of the famous Chester Beatty papyri. The text of the Christogenian New Testament follows those manuscripts which want that word and. And they are two of the three oldest known manuscripts containing this portion of Acts. Earlier, in the start of his address, at verses 15 and 16. Paul addresses the entire audience as men, brethren, and he calls them Israelites and those fearing Yahweh. Then Paul says that the God of this people, Israel, Yahweh is the God of Israel and no one else, chose our fathers. 
And that that same God brought to Israel a Savior, Yahshua Christ. And that the baptism of repentance by John was to all the people of Israel. Here Paul says, to us was this word of salvation dispatched, meaning to Israel. Many of the manuscripts have to you, including the 3rd century papyrus P45. However, whether Paul stated either to us or to you is immaterial. He's speaking to Israel. The statement is just as exclusive to Israel by either reading. The use of the conjunction both in Greek and Hebrew is often emphatic and not indicative of the addition of something new or different. There is nowhere in any of Paul's discourse where room may be found in the covenants of God for anyone but Israelites, physical, genetic Israelites of the seed of Abraham. Men, brethren, sons of the race of Abraham. That can't be, there's no spiritual Israel there. Absolutely not. And the phrase, those among you fearing God, can only refer to Israelites who fear Yahweh among the greater population of those of Israel. It doesn't refer to any alien group of people. Paul's addressing men and brethren. Men who are brethren. Verse 27. Indeed, those dwelling in Jerusalem and their leaders, not knowing him, those are important words there, not knowing him, and the voices of the prophets being read throughout every Sabbath, judging him had fulfilled them. The word krino, first the word krino, judging him may have been interpreted as condemning him. Rather than not knowing him and the voices, the Codex Beze has not understanding the writings. The Codex Laudianus has not knowing him and the writings. The Beze is full of um, odd readings of scripture. The words used by Paul, where he says of the people who judged Joshua Christ that they did not know him, demonstrate fully that those dwelling in Jerusalem and their leaders were at the least, for the most part, spurious men and not truly Israelites, but Edomites. Paul displays the same understanding in epistles which he wrote not long after this time, and when we get to Acts chapter 15, we'll have another discussion of chronology in relationship to the book of Acts, but we are very close to Acts 15 in time now. We saw Herod Agrippa I died in Acts chapter 12. That was 41 AD. Paul's in Corinth, I believe, in 45 AD. Paul, in epistles written not long after this time, displays the same understanding in his epistles to the Romans and to the Thessalonians. 
that those dwelling in Jerusalem and their leaders were certainly not Israelites, but were Edomites. Yahshua Christ had said to his adversaries in the temple, as it's recorded in John chapter 10, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Therefore, one cannot say that the men who were culpable for the death of Christ were Israelites. Although it is certain that Israelites did not oppose those leaders in condemning Christ, and for that reason they bore the responsibility, as Peter explains earlier in the book of Acts. Elsewhere, the Apostle John informs us in chapter 12 of his Gospel, and speaking of Christ, and I'll quote from John 12, 37, Now having made so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, in order that the words of Isaiah the prophet would be fulfilled, which says, Yahweh, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? Those words come from Isaiah 53, from a messianic prophecy. For this reason, they have not been able to believe because again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, but they should not see with the eyes and perceive with their hearts and turn about, that I shall heal them. Isaiah said these things because he had seen his honor and had spoken concerning him. John is saying that these things are all messianic prophecies. Yet, likewise, even many of the leaders believed in him, but on account of the Pharisees, they would not profess it, lest they would be expelled from the assembly hall, for they cherished the honor of men more than even the honor of Yahweh. Both John, in chapter 12 of his Gospel, and Paul here, allude to Isaiah chapter 53 as the proof that Yahshua was the Christ. For Isaiah 53 describes a man appointed by Yahweh God who would be stricken for the sins of Israel and overcome the power of the grave. I will read from Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of Yahweh revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he opens, not his mouth. 
He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? Or possibly his birth. For he was cut out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked. And with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence. Neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased Yahweh to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by the knowledge. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he has poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Paul tells us that those who condemned Christ knew neither him nor the writings. John cites Isaiah chapter 6. But in John chapter 12, the apostle also explained that many of the leaders did believe in Christ. However, they would not support him because they preferred the benefits of the society. John explains that yet likewise, even many of the leaders believed in him, but on account of the Pharisees, they would not profess it, lest they would be expelled from the assembly hall, for they cherished the honor of man more than even the honor of Yahweh. A study of the prophecies of Ezekiel and Jeremiah concerning the people of Jerusalem, namely, but not limited to Jeremiah's chapters 2 and 4, and I'm sorry, 2 and 24, the story to good and bad figs, and Ezekiel chapter 16, reveals that from that early time, there were both bad figs among the people who were race-mixed, and good figs, who were purely Israelites. Many other statements from the prophets corroborate this as fact. In Isaiah chapter 6, we see the following words, which were addressed not only to the bad figs in Jerusalem, and not only to the good figs. They were addressed to the people in general. And I'll read from Isaiah 6, 9. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy. And shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. The subject of that prophecy is described in Isaiah 5, where it says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between me and my vineyard. Whether good fig or bad fig, Israelite or Edomite, Yahweh God used the blindness of the people to accomplish his will. For he had to die as a man in order to redeem Israel. As Paul explains later to the Corinthians, from the King James Version of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, 
which none of the princes of this world knew, for if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The blindness of the people, whether they be bad things or good, the blindness of the people played into the hands of Yahweh God because he had to come and die as a man. And if the people knew it, they'd have crucified the high priest instead. Instead, they went along with it. They were as blind as the leaders were. But Paul here tells us that those leaders who judge Christ did not know him. They were not Israelites. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. I will be here next week, Yahweh willing. And we shall continue to discuss Paul's address here to this Judean assembly in Pisidian Antioch because there are some very important things to point out here with this address. Praise Yahweh and good night.